Hi, I'm Mark Fellows and welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Before we kick off this week, I just want to give a shout out to another podcast, The Furious Curious, that kindly invited me on as a guest to talk about a project that I'm working on with my partner, Elaine Castillo-Keller, and our recent guest, Vanessa borboni Halleck, called Back the Neighbourhood. It's all about urban regeneration and we're focused on the West Village in New York. If you want to check it out, just go to The Furious Curious and listen to this week's episode. And if you want to learn more about Back the Neighbourhood and what we're up to, just go to backtheneighbourhood.com or follow us on Instagram at Back the Neighbourhood. Now, on with this week's episode. I think serendipity plays a, a big role in, in all aspects of life. And I think even to be ending up in London for someone that grew up in the Cairngorms National Park, it was a big part of unknown and challenges, risks and random nature. But I think it plays a huge part of where you get to and even to be making these weather graphics and the whole point of this conversation and how I got in touch with Julian who who kindly gave my name as, as the next guest I think it's just it's remarkable and like it's all kind of chaos it's actually like the atmosphere in a way it's just unpredictable and it takes these different paths but the, the current is the, the right path and it does some, it's something that really does interest me this week's guest is meteorologist, Scottish Highlander, Gaelic speaker and bagpiper Scott Duncan. Now London-based, Scott grew up in the wilds of northern Scotland, an area called the Cairngorms. Inspired by the dramatic natural habitat, he developed a love of nature and especially the climate. It led him to study meteorology at Reading and Oklahoma universities and propelled him into becoming one of the most talked about climate communicators as a result of his creative application of climate pattern data and the visualisation of it on Instagram and his own website. In this episode, Scott recounts his early years, the role of his family, and the impact of growing up in such an inspiring environment. Developing his expansive worldview of climate at a young age, Scott discusses his path to becoming a climate communicator, his intuitive interest in appreciation for the power of storytelling, and how this has transformed how he tells the story of climate. Scott really provides a refreshingly simple explanation of the issues our planet faces, the different impact of climate change at the Antarctic and the Arctic, and the other devastating effects that we're experiencing around the planet. He also explains how he deals with activists, deniers and trolls, and why he focuses on reputable data sources to navigate the politically charged field of climate communications. We discuss the decade of action, the expectations of the upcoming COP26 in Glasgow in November, and Scott provides insight into what the target numbers actually mean. He also provides examples of the extreme weather patterns we're experiencing on what feels like a weekly basis. I think listening to this episode, you'll leave more grounded, more informed, and hopefully more inspired. Now on with the show. Scott, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hello, Mark. Thanks for having me. First of all, a shout out to Gillian Burke for recommending that we speak to you, Scott. So thanks to Gillian. Thank you, Gillian. Yeah, so anyway, it's a pleasure to speak to you on this snowy day in New York, suitably in clement conditions and what feels to be like a, a dramatic climate event. <laughs> well, it's very, very different to what we've got in London, envious of all the snow you have out in, in New York and this big blizzard. You can hopefully enlighten us a bit about what is going on with our climate when we get into that. But before we start, we always start with understanding more about your life before your core life focus and your core life focus being as a meteorologist and as you describe yourself a climate communicator so we'd like to understand a bit more about your your background and your upbringing your childhood and particularly from where you were born and being a, a fellow scot from i believe you were raised in newton moore in the cairngorms in scotland how your upbringing parental support impacted the journey that you're you're on now yeah well growing up in scotland being in the heart of the cairngorms national park as you mentioned in a very small town called Newton Moor, home to about a couple of thousand people, and it really did shape who I am today, I think. Just being in somewhere that's surrounded by mountains and rivers and, and all sorts of extreme weather really did help capture my imagination and enthusiasm for the natural world. And I think, yeah, growing up in such a remarkable place, it, it really does does impact you know, who you become today. And my parents, as you mentioned, they're very much uh, into the outdoors and nature. And I think that really did help get me more involved with it from a very young age. And then naturally led on to a very keen interest to say it lightly in weather, climate and, and nature itself. What about your parents? What did they do? They're both in nature 
conservancy. So kind of equivalent in, in England, for example, be kind of natural England. So it's kind of protecting the natural environment and the kind of policies that go into it. So that sort of thing in the background was was there for, for my family when we were growing up. But it's, it's something that's quite different to the, perhaps the weather and climate side. But I think that kind of keen interest of, of what's going on outside outdoors it's all kind of intrinsically linked i think what about siblings got a brother and he did music he's very talented we both did a lot of music growing up a lot of fun spent uh, summers especially playing in bands and all sorts uh, and he's now pursuing a career in tv production he's based in glasgow but doesn't share the same passion for the outdoors and the environment that you do Oh, he's, he's totally keen on some of the hobbies we share, like skiing and being outdoors and in the hills and all sorts. Uh, when it comes to weather, there's always a lot, a lot of fun where I would look at the forecast and be totally obsessed. If it was going to snow, for example, if I was like yourself with a big blizzard outside, I, I would be nonstop checking the latest forecast. And as we were growing up, that sort of thing would really wind him up because he'd be wanting to watch something else on the TV. Uh, and when I was growing up, that was the only real way of getting the forecast because we didn't really have the Internet. Uh, back then <laughs> and yeah it's something that he doesn't share the same passion I would say for weather and, and climate he, he enjoys it I would say and he, if he ever does listen to this he might he might laugh and go That's... where do you think that early interest and fascination with uh, the weather and forecasts and climate came from yeah, that's that's something I have thought about a lot and as I grew up I, I thought why oh, must be quite strange I, I love you know waking up to see the snow arrive like if the forecast said it was three in the morning I'd be awake putting the light on outside just to see if it had started and or if there's a thunderstorm which is quite rare for the highlands but nonetheless I'd be at the window you know checking to see what was going on not many people or well nobody had that level of enthusiasm that I knew of growing up a lot of people were very interested it was always a talking point small talk and something that kind of just got brushed over quite a lot of the time and I'd be always wanting to go into the details but nobody really shared the same level but it wasn't until I applied for university or started thinking about the future became aware of people that shared the similar kind of level of interest and yet when it, it was basically people at university who really shared that same level who'd you know want to go storm chasing who would be up at all hours checking you know different types of weather as they came in anything exciting or new and to answer your question, though, it's something that's always baffled me. I know my, my grandfather was very interested in meteorology, and one of my uncles is also very interested in weather, and they, I guess it might be something to do with some sort of link through through family, just being interested uh-huh. in, the, in something like that, but I can't, I can't put a finger on it. Your worldview, I mean, I know what it's like growing up in Scotland. You can have this very parochial view of the world, and it seems like the world revolves around your community. When did you become aware? I mean, obviously, climate and weather is a a global phenomenon. When did you start to think beyond just the local climate and what you were experiencing? Is there a time when you suddenly went, oh, there's something bigger at play here? I think when I first became aware of weather patterns and, and what kind of things went into it, and that was getting into mid-high school, I think. So kind of 15, 16, I became aware of some very useful websites that started to show like projections on the map and how everything was part of this massive continuum with the atmosphere just kind of flowing around the world. And I think the focus of what was happening on my doorstep was very much as I was growing up you know before that I was very interested on you know the just the British Isles or just Scotland but then I'd want to get more information and basically it's like if you're in a river like what's going to happen you look upstream and then you start looking at the bigger picture so I think to put a an age on it I would have been about 15 or 16 when I started to think about the bigger picture uh, and then think about well, if the weather is happening, like big blizzards in, in the United States, is it going to come to the United Kingdom? And, you know, there's a lot of different things you kind of look at to, to work that out. And that kind of questions in my, my own mind, I guess, have made me aware. And that was probably about 15 years old. Oh, and what about your peers at school? Did they see you as this budding weatherman for to replace? I think the guy in the UK when I was growing up was a guy called Michael Fish. I suppose 
I was almost embarrassed about how interested I was and how much I'd probably want to talk about it. I don't know if other people were that interested. I actually remember I was in this, this school library and there was just a lot of snow showers coming in from the north. And I was wondering, oh, is, is the school going to close? This is the kind of question I'd always want to answer. And I thought, well, I don't have internet at home. And I knew if the, the Met Office had a radar set up that I could get onto the website. And I was meant to be doing some like work for a, for a class. I can't remember what it was. And the teacher came in and saw me looking at the, the Met Office radar on the on the library computer, and it was almost like trying to hide it and minimise it. You're like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. What, weather weather porn. <laughs> yeah, caught net. Um, okay, so your sense of self and as a child, were you very much a part of a group, or were you very insular in, on how you went about life? Well, what, as I said, growing up, I did a lot of music. Uh, and sport, which then led to opportunities with making friends, you know, out with the community in mm-hmm. my hometown. And as you know, in Scotland, the, the transport and if somebody's from, you know, Inverness, that's not that near technically when you're younger and you don't have a car. So a lot of my friends uh, growing up were in music and a lot of them were at school, but then a lot of them weren't at the same schools I went to. But to answer your question about whether... I was kind of, I guess, introvert or extrovert. It's it's quite hard to say. I think I was quite shy at school. Is there anything, any enduring memory from your childhood that relates or has impacted on what you're doing today? Any sort of moment when you went, okay, this is this is this is more than just a hobby. I think it's a series of many events, and I think a couple really do stand out. My mother would take me and my brother skiing and train with the Cairngorm Ski Club very enthusiastic about skiing absolutely loved it but hated it when the weather was bad and I remember like putting on the thermals that were kind of a bit itchy and that really does does ring out as a strong memory but I would always want to know the weather and I think the kind of feelings I got about skiing something I really loved but hated if it was bad I think continually going skiing with my mum and then eventually with the ski club was was really kind of a defining like period to get an interest in weather but there was another time where I lived across from the River Spey, which is uh, one of Scotland's biggest rivers, and it often flood. And I could see the flooding from my bedroom window, actually. And one day my dad and I just drove down the length of the River Spey on one of the big flood days. And that was just absolutely fantastic. We just stopped at different laybys and looked at it. And some, some people will think it's really boring. Like, why would you do that? But I think it was such a, a highlight for me and I think even my dad sharing that almost interest just to drive with me it was it was really quite a defining moment I think so yeah. that was quite a very fond memory I'd say. And what about the the environment that you grew up in a lot of people um, we speak to have had their their struggles and often grown up with a sense of economic scarcity and others even have had a scarcity of love and parental support how would you describe the balance between abundance and scarcity in your environment and your home life? I think with somewhere like the central, like the highlands of Scotland, where you're surrounded by an abundance of opportunity, it just makes everything so much, so much easier than for something that I'm interested in, for example, like weather and climate, it's on your doorstep and you're surrounded by the extremes all the time. So I think, I mean, I'd never take it for granted. As I was living there, I wasn't appreciating it as much as I do now, living in central London. But yeah, I look back with such fond memories of growing up in a place that was just surrounded by everything on your doorstep. So all you need to do is go outside for like a, an excellent source of entertainment. Uh, and I think that was the main like abundance in my life is, is well, to have, you know, I had family and friends around in a, in a nice community in a small town. It's very different to like what I see in London uh, moved here just over a year ago and I think yeah going back to that point abundance of opportunities and just being able to get out there and enjoy it is is kind of the the top dollar and what was school like for the young Scots school I think I could have probably worked harder actually I I didn't (laughs) yeah I think a lot of people can can say that I was well very interested in in music and sport and and well science to a very fundamental level I really enjoyed the sciences and I I, my primary education was through the medium of Gaelic so we were learning to read and write in Gaelic before English uh, in Newtonmore primary school and I think that's very different to 
well, the vast majority of people in this country to have this bilingual upbringing at school because my parents didn't actually speak the language but this very unique setup in primary school where we would <laughs> the Gaelic speakers would play football against the English speakers and it was quite a quite a fascinating well looking so back pe- at it so a lot of people listen to this are in the US they probably don't know what Gaelic is could you just explain sure it's an it's an ancient language from Scotland so the, the Irish have something similar called Gaelic we've also got Scots language but the, the Gaelic language has only got 18 letters in it. It sounds very, very different to, to English. And it's something that took a bit of a hammering during the Highland clearances. It was outlawed in the Highlands and music culture and Gaelic in Scotland is, is coming back in popularity, I think. And it was something that I, I really took forward as a, a teenager, actually, as well, because the Gaelic and the music, which I was both interested in, was something that well, made me more aware of the culture in Scotland. But yeah, for people that don't know about it, it's, it's a fascinating old language. And actually quite a lot of people in places like Nova Scotia and even Australia and Canada, all sorts of places all around the world, they have you know, parts of Scotland within them because of these Highland clearances. And the, the language is actually found all over the world, but in very small communities. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting language. And it's, Can you give it's us an uses. example of a welcome or a goodbye? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll stay with... I'll start with I'm Scott and it's very cold outside or it's very cold today. It's Mrs. Yeah. Scott. Hi, uavisach fuer and you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got a, a, a certain Scandinavian ring to it. Yeah, almost Germanic. Uh-huh. Quite often I tell people that like German for cheese is Käse, German, mm. uh, Gallic for cheese is Kasher, Kasher, Käse. So it's, it's got similarities to kind of the Germanic or Nordic roots, but I can't mm-hmm. tell you the history and the fundamentals off the top of my head. Yeah, it's brilliant that they actually gave you that at your uh, at junior school. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. So you went on and studied meteorology, uh, meteorology and climate at Reading, and I also ended up at University in Oklahoma, I believe. So clearly you were quite directed in terms of where your career was heading. There was no ambiguity there. Yeah, it's a, an interesting path to Reading, I would say, because there are degrees in Scotland that do meteorology and geophysics, for example, or physics and, and meteorology. And this was at the time when tuition fees were getting lifted to a very expensive £9,000 a year in England. And a lot of people would, you know, raise an eyebrow at that. Yeah. And I was obviously thinking the same. But the way it works out, I read the finer print. It's basically a, a tax that you only start paying if you earn a certain sum of money. But I won't go into the, the tuition fees, but it was something that was at the back of my mind. But Edinburgh was obviously something at the very front of my mind. It's, fa- it's very nearby. It's familiar. It's safer. It's Scotland. I'll, I'll be closer to home. But interestingly, my mother worked with the mother of another meteorologist who grew up in Fort William, who also played the bagpipes, uh, speaks Gaelic, and he studied for one year and then decided to go to the University of Reading. And I think conversations must have just crossed paths in the office, and one thing led to another. I met up with this chap. He's a, he's a great guy called Callum McCall, and we had a conversation about why he went to the south of England to study meteorology and, and, and why did he not stick with Edinburgh and the long story short was Edinburgh's meteorology degree is absolutely fantastic but he was wanting I guess a straight meteorology degree because the other one I think at the time I think it might have changed since then was a kind of geophysics earth science degree and he was he was like me he was a guy that was setting his alarm to watch the snow fall and <laughs> uh, the thunderstorms that were coming in so I took his word for it I went to the open day down in Reading met some of the, the professors and, and had a, a chat and my heart was set for Reading. The coffee room was covered in weather maps and like everybody down there was as I imagined almost and it was yeah it, it ticked all the boxes and as soon as I knew what I had to do I was trying to get the grades and get to Reading. It must be interesting because so many degrees that people do in, and in their education are just taken because it's an area they think would be of some interests or value for a future career but it sounds like meteorology is a is a real sort of geekdom 
sort of area where it really attracts sort of weather geeks and they're like yeah there's no one there that's just there for the ride everyone's there because they really are into weather yeah i think a lot of people that well everybody i know that's done the degree firm friends i still you know chat to daily everybody has got this innate interest and have always been very enthusiastic about it more so probably than you know anybody else they knew as they grew up for example i think it really does attract you know all sorts but everybody shares that kind of common deep down interest and it makes it very very easy for for someone like me when i was coming to the end of school i i really didn't know what i wanted to do in terms of you know well, actually, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> I knew I was wanting to, you know, to do anything weather. And I knew there was a degree in weather. I became aware of that. And I think there's a lot of people that want to go to university, but might not know exactly what they want to do. Or there's, you know, they pick a degree that's a bit broader and you kind of zone in on something later. But for me, it was, it was very straightforward in, in knowing that meteorology was was the way forward and, and i found a degree that was perfect which had the bonus of a year in oklahoma mm-hmm. well let's talk about what you've been doing because you were recommended julian burke when she told us that we should interview you she was fascinated by the work that you do in terms of your data visualization and the way that you graphically bring to life the impact of climate forces or change that's happening it's particularly through your instagram feed i wasn't aware of it and it is fascinating so could you just talk to us about since graduating you've developed a love of code which has obviously given you the ability to create these wonderful data visualizations but also clearly there's an entrepreneurial spirit in you as well so maybe you could just elaborate on that and and what is taking you in the direction of doing what you're doing with these wonderful data visualizations I think it's 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 not a straightforward path after university. Well, starting with university itself, actually, I wasn't that good coding at all. There was actually a, a module in programming for earth sciences, uh, and I, I failed miserably in one of the tests, which was actually, in fact, marked by a computer program, ironically. So it wasn't a good first experience, but... The opportunities in Oklahoma kind of expanded my horizons. I realized it wasn't all that bad, but it wasn't until my my first job, you know, I was seeing how weather maps are made and how they look and how people interpret them. And I thought the way people interpret a weather map is so important for the forecast, because if it doesn't show the story that you want to tell, it's hard to, you know, deliver that story if, for example, it's it's going to be hot or, or snowy or cold, for example. Let's take snowy and cold because it is winter. And you have a map that's, you know, got the, the data there and it, it, it's cold. It says it's going to be minus 10, but it's just, it just doesn't look that cold, for example. The wider audience will like, won't really engage with that because it doesn't look cold. Even though if you look very closely, you can actually see it's, it's minus 10, for example. But I think I I saw a lot of websites which had kind of outdated maps or, or color scales. And I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that myself, but just change it so it looked the way I wanted to. And I started just making maps and I'm, I put them on Twitter originally. And then I got involved with a website owner and the website was called WX Charts. And it was it was quite new at the time. And I started working with the chap behind it and his name was Dan Harding, a great guy. And we ended up working in a, a separate company together. And we... Well, I gave it an overhaul in terms of appearance of charts uh, and the maps and, and how they looked. And we kind of worked together and we became co-owners of it and it grew in popularity. And I think just kind of redesigning all these maps to look and feel the way I wanted to show how you know the temperature should look or how much the rainfall amount should look, it just one thing led to another and how the map look and how they are communicated I thought was really important and then that led into the bigger issues I think climate and and how they should look and how people react to you know a difference between a graph and a map so it's quite an interesting part I'd say. 
So you're using these really interesting, engaging maps and graphics to communicate weather and climate events across the world. And I posted one of them on Instagram yesterday saying I was interviewing you today and got a lot of really interesting feedback from people on it. And, you know, we're we're living in a in a very unusual time, which seems to be certainly very unusual, where, where truth and fact and data seem to be what I call subjectified. <laughs> this doesn't seem to be little, there seems to be little objectivity in evidence. And I've, when we've spoken before this interview, you acknowledge that the weather and climate has become almost political ammunition. So how do you give people confidence that your data is authentic and grounded in fact when there's so much mistrust? Or is this, how do you is this something that concerns you or, or is it something you affects the way that you design what you, you, you create? I think that is one of the biggest issues. I think you're very correct to say when you see data, you've, you've got to question it. And, and if anybody looks at anything I do, always look for the source mentioned either mm-hmm. on the graphic itself or in the little bio that goes with it. Uh, and I always make sure that the source is, is labelled. So I normally use very respectable sources like the ECMWF Copernicus data platform. Uh, so let's say kind of European Union funded. What's that called? EMWF. Yeah, okay. And they've got fantastic open source data. So entirely free for anybody to plot. You just download it. And if you have the know, you can, you can make your maps and your graphs. So they're... They're world leaders in kind of weather forecasting and climate data. But there's also the American side as well. We've got the GISTEMP, and that's from NASA, associated with the American bodies. And they're you know, verified scientific libraries of data, I would say. And, and they're they're working partners with, with other bodies. And, and I'll plot not just one source but many i always provide a source and make sure that's crystal clear that the data is coming from somewhere that's you know verified and well known and it's not just somebody in their back garden with a thermometer and said oh look it's warmer now than it was you know last year or whatever i mean you're i mean this is as you say it's open source readily available data to anyone but what you've done with it in in developing this platform of influence it's been picked up and noticed by everyone I've heard from Greta Thunberg to the World Economic Forum. What does it makes what you do different to other meteorologists or climate communicators? Why is why are people taking such an interest in it? That's something I'm not too sure about, but I think I can have a stab at answering it. I think with the original set of graphics that went viral last May or June. I think it was May or June, and it was to do with the Arctic. And we had a, an exceptional heat wave where the Arctic broke its heat record and it got to about 38 degrees Celsius, 100 Fahrenheit within the Arctic Circle. And the Arctic sea ice was depleting. What time, what time uh, of year was that? I think that was in June, June 2020. Mm. I can't remember the date off the top of my head. I could double check. And basically made a color scale that showed how hot it was in that part of the world, but also plotted the ice right next to this kind of fiery hot map on a, on a global perspective. So it wasn't like a square map that you might see on you know, other platforms. I think the, the kind of global look to it made it kind of ring through that it's a, it's a global issue and you're looking at the very hot temperatures right, to, right next to the icy environments. And well, heat waves are not uncommon in, in Russia and Siberia. This one was particularly exceptional and it captured the, the topic kind of bang on the head and, and instantly gained a huge amount of attraction. And I think from there, it's, it's using these maps with a projection that's just capturing the, the story or the feeling or the mood of people looking at it just in a different way maybe. And it's not, a graph, for example, you could show this data on a graph with an x-axis mm. and a y-axis and show it changing through time. But I think, well, something that I wasn't aware of as a, as a scientist that's been surrounded by data now for years, I, I do forget what people look at 
on a day-to-day basis outside the scientific community is not x and y axes and mm. maps and graphs and all sorts so i think something striking quite simple like it's hot you want it to look hot you've got the ice there and they're right next to each other and it just bang everybody can see it straight away i think that's why it did so well in set. and then one thing led to another and, and you know big names using my stuff quite regularly now i think that helps kind of what inspire me to create other types of viewing and and all sorts I suppose over the the last ten years, we maybe and be interesting to see if you echo this that there, although there's still probably a big debate occurring outside of certainly the scientific community, a lot of people will, most people will acknowledge that some form of climate change is happening, and whether we're approaching calamity or not, I think the debate is whether it is man-made or whether it's just a natural phenomenon. Are you getting any sense of shifting attitudes from the feedback you hear? from the people you speak to or the communities you're part of in terms of a shifting awareness or an acceptance that this is something that we as humanity are responsible for? I have a very unique insight to how people react to, you know, a graphic that's showing something that's very in the news about climate change. You get everything from the very strong denier who will, cause big arguments on on that thread for example on twitter or instagram and then you'll have the opposite you'll have an activist maybe who might have read some very scary stories which might not be based on too much science and this runaway warming and very bleak outlook within you know just a couple of years and i think to to deal with both sides on the extremes is is very difficult and it's it's something to go back to your question, if, if I've noticed it changing or not, my, my exposure of this has only been, well, less than a year. I don't know if the mindset of, you know, the majority is, is represented in this very short time scale, but I can, only, I can only guess. And I think I do have some sort of insight. But I think even now we're still looking at quite a, a spread in, in mm-hmm. how people look at this from a wider audience. I think the scientific community is getting more f- focused on what exactly is happening and what we need to do. But I think the general mindset, there are still a huge number of people, especially from what I've seen on the, the kind of denial side that, you know, it's a, it's a natural warming and, and so on and, and hit the common myths on the head. But it's, it's, it's something, whether people are, are, are listening and, and understanding it enough, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think the, the, the UN... Uh, global goals and the the Paris Accord, and obviously we've got the event happening in Glasgow late, late this year. Is it COP COP twenty six? Yeah, COP twenty six. So anyway, yeah, we're in what's been called the decade of action, where we're we're all striving to remain under the target that was set in, in uh, 2015, the Paris Accord, to keep temperature rise under 1.5 degrees, or certainly under 2 degrees. But I don't think we're on target for that at the moment. Being someone that's close to that community, what's your read and where we stand at the moment? And uh, are you seeing anything interesting at play that give us some hope that we might get back on target? Because I know every industry is being held accountable. And I heard recently a founder and a big fashion brand say that they're some way off hitting their target of plus 1.5 degrees for that industry and they're the second biggest pollutant on the planet so i just um i'm just intrigued to get your perspective on it yeah there's a lot of news out there that's saying not enough has been done since the very intense talks of the paris summit in 2015 and i think cop 26 in glasgow this year is is really a good wake-up call and everyone will check their books and see exactly where, where they're going with, you know, we've, we've done five years, what are the next five years, 10 years going to be like? I couldn't comment on you know, individual countries or individual industries. And I know there is a lot going on to adapt and, and work towards, you know, a greener and, and more efficient future. But I think to hit the 1.5 or not is, is a very difficult question. And I think a lot of people get really hung up on the 1.5. It is a sliding scale where, you know, 1.5 would be great if we could achieve it. 1.6 isn't a death spiral and, you know, doom and gloom like off a cliff. It's mm-hmm. it's about damage limitation, basically. And I think to be ambitious, you have to set targets and, and set goals and, and deliver promises. And I think whether people have, have done enough since 2015 or 
or are going to achieve enough after COP26 is, is up for debate. But I think it's very important to keep at the back of the mind. Some parts of the world are already warming much faster than others. And it's, it's a global 1.5 target. And for people that aren't familiar with the 1.5, it's, it's a warming versus what was considered normal before the industrial eras. So if the, the whole planet averaged across all the oceans and all the land is more than 1.5 degrees, then technically we've, we've not met that target. But places like the Arctic are warming a lot faster. For example, Siberia over the last year was averaging several degrees above uh, the, the pre-industrial normal. And that's something that we're seeing more often, especially around the Arctic, whether it's Siberia or within the Arctic Circle itself. It, it doesn't really matter. But there's lots of parts of the world that are warming a lot faster. And Why would that be? It's all part of Arctic amplification. So the Arctic itself is, is home to it. It's got the, the sea ice, uh, which retreats in the summer and then refreezes in the winter. But if we have a warmer atmosphere, we then melt more of that ice in the summer, which then exposes the sea below it. And then the sea is more susceptible or is, is better absorbing radiation from the sun. So the sea itself then warms. So then when you get to October, November, when the sea starts to try and refreeze, the sea struggles because of it's warmer. the warmer the warmer oceans. So then the, the sea ice itself, its thickness isn't the same as you go through the winter. And year on year, you'll come back to spring and it'll start to melt and it'll melt quicker. And then you'll have more water exposed. And you start to see this quite damaging feedback system where you lose ice expose more water find it harder to refreeze and then more melts more water and then you get less ice and then you'll, you'll see the arctic having very profound differences compared to what was normal when it was all locked up in ice even 30 40 years ago and, and that's something where we've seen very rapid climate change so the the 1.5 globally is is the big picture target because you can't just take the arctic and, and then say that's what we're basing it off because mm. it's it's a very unique environment but every country in the world has its own signature and i actually have done something recently where i've looked at every single country using a fantastic data source from uh, berkeley earth again free open source everything's on just text files that anybody can read and make a graph from if they know how to use excel and every country's got its own signature and as you go up like in places like russia or like green, you can see quite abrupt changes in, in temperature trends. If you go to somewhere like in the tropics, for example, they're very maritime, they're surrounded by oceans, their, their variation is much smoother, much slower. Mm. And I think that's something that's maybe not so well understood across the world. And when it comes to this, this global 1.5 target, it's something that climate change doesn't discriminate. It, it's just something that's going to move on and regardless and, and where you are, it will be different. Okay, I've got a couple of questions just for my own clarification. Presumably, if you're seeing this, this cycle of change that's occurring the way you said it's going beyond the, the 1.5 degrees in the Arctic, presumably we're seeing more melting glaciers and uh, ice-covered regions, so like Greenland, like certain parts of Alaska, and the, around the Arctic. That must be increasing ocean levels. Presumably it's destroying or damaging indigenous communities. And presumably there are other sort of biological effects happening in terms of the changing ecosystem. Isn't there a risk that that will all have a, a knock-on effect? Even if there's less than 1.5 degrees increase around other parts of the world, isn't it the ecological impact, and the let's say a domino effect, that's the bigger risk? Yeah, certainly the impacts from as you say melting sea ice well a uh, glacial ice the melting of the sea ice is actually quite a, a common mistake because the sea ice itself doesn't contribute to sea level rise because the ice is already in the water so if you've got like a, a glass that's full of ice and water then if you melt the ice it doesn't overflow but greenland itself is an ice base that's on land and glaciers themselves are on land so when they melt and the same with antarctica actually it's on a, a land mass if they melt they increase the sea level but also warmer water expands and takes up more volume so that's another contribution to rising sea levels so it's not just the addition of water it's the water changing thermodynamically and it's and it's volume but yes to get back to the impacts of that places that and ecosystems that really are thriving on you know, the natural icy environments or permafrosts, for example, you know, they are yeah. taking a hit. For example, this year, actually, well, sorry, 2020 was a very profound and shocking example of, of changes that are, that are coming with 
for example, in northern Russia, there was a, a permafrost thawing which disrupted an old oil container type industry, which basically compromised the infrastructure of that diesel plant, which then leaked 22,000 tonnes of red diesel into oh, wow. high latitude rivers, which eventually flowed into well within the Arctic Circle. And the, the lawsuit's still going on in Russia with that. And it's, it's a huge disaster. And, and I think it was declared an emergency. I don't know how much exposure it got in terms of the news, but it was something that I was looking at at the time of the Arctic setting its heat records. But also wildfires have the ability to burn harsher and longer. And in different places, for example, when, when you do get you know the ice melting sooner or a lack of snow cover in certain parts of the world, for example, again, going back to Russia, you can get like we saw this year, extreme wildfires in, in places that are very cold in the winter, uh, which I've had wildfires in the past, but they can just now burn harder and longer. And then there's the, the ecosystems that are all within that, which are fragile and not not used to this because it's just it's not been like this, you know, something that they're used to at all. And you mentioned the Antarctic. What's the impact uh, that's happening there? Are we seeing concerning changes in that ecosystem? So the Antarctic is the common go-to for a lot of deniers. And I see it every time I share, for example, going through the summer, the retreat of the, the summer ice in the Arctic. People will say, but tell me what's going on in Antarctica. And that's always a good point. Yeah, good, good point. But the, the extent of the ice in Antar- Antarctica is not actually changing that much compared to the Arctic. First of all, it's a very, very, very different setup. You're not surrounded by land like we are in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's on um, a landmass, and it's got very high elevation. There is still a lot of ice melt going on in terms of volume of ice, but the, the extent of it during the winter is not changing as much or as, or as quickly at all. It's actually you know, relatively stable in comparison. It's very different in that it's it's ice on top of a landmass. It's got higher elevations. It's not connected to continents like the Northern Hemisphere. So it's very, very different. The changes there are much slower and it's not suffering the same Arctic amplification as its counterpart in the North. And it's all to do with, well, yeah, as I've touched on, it's to do with the, the landmasses surrounding it and the global circulation and, and getting this kind of runaway impact of it melting and then leading to more warming. It's, it's just not the same down there. But we do have data in Antarctica and there has been warming and we are losing uh, ice volume, but it's, it's something that's just not as profound as the Arctic or as striking as the Arctic because a lot of it's on visuals and spatial extent of the ice. And because, as I said, Antarctica is on a landmass, it, it's not shrinking visually like the northern hemisphere okay so as a meteorologist and a climate communicator are what you, you're you're focused on telling the story of what is actually happening are you familiar or engaged in conversations with people that might be working on creative solutions to help us avoid any potential or getting worse? i mean we're obviously dealing with pretty catastrophic climate events even now before we're even hit 1.5 degrees are there any people that you're engaged with or people you follow that are doing interesting things? I'm familiar with, the, obviously, Project Drawdown. I watched that film that Woody Harrelson was in called Kiss the Earth. Well, Project Drawdown is actually something you know, that I would recommend for just getting away from the doom and gloom. Because there are people that will you know, message or comment and say, there's nothing being done, it's, it's all a disaster and it's out of control and there's nothing we can do and nobody's doing anything about it. And that's just simply not true. There are loads of things going on and I think it's very important not to, to forget about those. And I think Project Drawdown, I was, I was looking at their website actually just recently and it's a good way of looking at different parts of the industries and, and what's actually possible. And a lot of the solutions are being used somewhere but maybe not enough of or it's just not uh, got enough funding or the ambition to like make it widespread. It's just not, you know, made it into a public eye. I think, you know, the, the ideas and the solutions are there uh, and we just have to implement them. Uh, and that actually leads me on to a, a chap who I, I became aware of last summer called Mike Hudima on Twitter. And he's continually sharing fantastic videos, often linked with the World Economic Forum or the UN, looking at 
things that have gone on in different countries, ideas that are working and currently being implemented. We just need mm-hmm. to kind of take advantage of the technology and the ideas that are being used elsewhere and make them more abundant. So I think, yes, targets and policies, it's something that I don't really want to you know, get too heavily involved in as, as a scientist, but there are, it's always good to remember that there are things that are going on and there are, there's reason to be excited. There's, there's reason to look forward to you know, new opportunities. And I think yeah, Project Drawdown has got a lot of what well, very accessible information right there. Uh, and I think that's a good start. I mean, obviously, this is outside your area of focus, but we are seeing interesting alternative models being developed to help us in terms of our system that we we i mean obviously when we talk about system sort of uh, level change we're talking about their shareholder primacy and the sort of the the focus on continual growth and gdp someone like economist kate raworth has developed her donut model that's had a lot of coverage in the press both negative and positive in, in fairness where she talks about the ecological ceiling and also where on the base in inner level we have the social foundations covered are you buoyed or are optimistic in terms of some of these examples of change suggested change that's happening around us that will help us avoid any potential climate calamity that the doom mongers are often quick to jump on and say that there's there's no way back i think there's there's reason to be optimistic and i actually watched that, that ted talk on the the economic donut, a very, very insightful and I think a great way of visualising different aspects of the economy, but also the problems of the world. I'm someone that likes designing graphics myself, so it's giving me really good ideas. And I think, yeah, there's different ways of, of looking at the problem and there's different ways of, you know, dealing with the problem itself. I mean, as someone that has worked in data visualisation, you take data and you look chart from the past to where we are in the present, but you can also project forward as well obviously there's there's multiple projections showing sort of the trend lines going forward oh yes yes i mean you could you could do that probably quite happily in your sleep but you must have a a sense yourself of how you feel of whether you feel optimistic or more pessimistic about the direction we're going in given that there are examples out there like what kate's proposed and what project drawdown are doing how do you generally feel that now that we are in this decade of, of action I think there, there's so much that needs to be done and it's very difficult. And it's going to be a, such a huge part of our lives as we go through what well, the next few decades. It's going to be in the news a lot more, especially, I think, in the run up to COP26 and after, but how targets are getting dealt with and if we're meeting them or not. And I think it won't be a surprise if a lot of them are not. And there's a huge amount of work to try and get, for example, cities greener, make things more affordable. That are So it's not just for those that are, maybe from a more affluent background, there's a huge mountain to climb and it does it does look scary. And there's a lot of, you know, as you said, doom-mongering articles out there which get away with this runaway warming and this this world that's, you know, uninhabitable. And, and you know, that's... I don't want to go down that path. And I think there are reasons to just focus on the task in hand and not basically give up like that. I think looking at it like that is almost giving up and saying you know, we're past the point of no return and it's a shocking spiral of, of doom. And I think that that's not the right attitude at all. And it's about knowing the science. And when it comes to voting and, you know, choosing who's making the decisions and what they're going to implement and what they're going to do about it, that's that's where we still got the, the chance to actually do something about it. And whether it's 1.5 or 1.4 or 1.6 or or whatever it is we, we ever, we, we finally get to in, in the end result, I think it's just really important that everybody just knows what they're voting for and what the leaders will be doing against those that aren't maybe contributing what they should be, I think. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the start that you, you love sport and you love to uh, play music and I believe that you do play the bagpipes. I've seen a post you made on social media of you with your pipes. I mean, maintaining balance, I mean, what you do is all the time. You, it, it must be when you see some of the dramatic visualizations that you create maintaining that balance between optimism and a sense of dread of what might be happening how does uh, your sport and your music and these activities how crucial are they to your own sort of both physical and mental well-being and are they actually meditative practices in their own right yeah i think so but 
obviously under current circumstances it's hard to enjoy either in a lockdown <laughs> but when I came to London yeah. I thought bagpiping would, would take a bit of a hit uh, since coming to England it's been more difficult to, to play music but I recently joined the City of London pipe band a fantastic group of youngsters who are you know we're all young professionals I think who are working and then playing bagpipes on a Wednesday evening, working <laughs> towards playing competitions, going to different parts of the country. And it's a really good distraction. Well, not just from you know climate, but just from like lockdown and other pressures. I think it's the same with anything. It's a real sense of enjoyment. I mean, recently, as I said, the, the difficult times, it's, it's something that I've, I've always enjoyed. And I think with sport, it's the same. Again, not something I've, I've done so much recently. It's harder now. I'm also in central London, but getting home and, and getting out into the mountains or, you know, even getting out to, to nearby, you know, the hills around London, it's, it's nice. And I think it is a sense of escapism, I think, because it's so detached from, from everything, trying to focus your mind and learn a new tune on the bagpipes. It's so different to looking at computer code or looking at a map or, or seeing a troll trying to take apart some of your, your graphics on Twitter <laughs> or whatever it might be. It's, it's a great way of relaxing and it's something I should be doing more of actually whilst we're in lockdown. I've kind of eased off the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's something that I do keep in my back pocket and really do enjoy. We are, usually ask our guests about education. It's an important part, probably one of the most important parts of preparing for a better future. So if you were handed the keys or invited into a cabinet at Downing Street, what would you do? to reorientate children's education to make them more climate conscious? And what potentially would you do from a policy standpoint that would give us uh, more of a fighting chance going forward? Oh, the keys to 10 Downing Street. It's about time so there's think... another Scott behind that behind that door. <laughs> yeah, I keep a safe distance, make sure I wash my hands. No, I'm kidding. I think I would obviously be very motivated by weather and climate and science. And not being too biased, I'd also be interested in sport and music. Yeah, yeah. You said it yourself with kind of awareness from a young age of weather and climate is something that there can never be too much of, in my my opinion. Whether that's the right opinion on a broader scale and, and how it would work within a curriculum, it's very difficult. And I can really comment on that. But I think showing what the changes will be in the coming decades and, and what it means for for us and, and what's happened in the past and just being very aware of, of what's going on in the world is, is something that, you know, I'd really be focusing on. I've actually had a lot of teachers get in touch with me to use my graphics in the classroom mm. and they've actually been That's in interesting. some university presentations one person actually used it i think in one of their quite an important talk from what from what they said and i thought that was very exciting that people were using it as an educational tool so yeah i'd definitely be wanting to make that something readily available for you know the schools classrooms and, mm. and beyond yeah okay. we always ask about serendipity because that's uh what we why we do this podcast in terms of asking our guests who we interview next but we're always intrigued as to how that serendipity has impacted on the journey you've found yourself on yeah uh, i think serendipity is as you said it, it plays a, a big role in in all aspects of life and i think even to be ending up in london for someone that grew up in the Cairngorms national park there's a big part of you know unknown and challenges risks and random nature and that for example that conversation my mum had with another mother who worked in the same office who had a son would I even be sitting here having this conversation right now or I've got done that degree in Reading instead of Edinburgh the different this path spreads is just remarkable and I think it plays a huge part of before you get to and even to be making these weather graphics and the whole point of this you know this conversation on how I got in touch with Jillian, who who kindly gave my name as a as a as the next guest. I think it's just it's remarkable and like it's all kind of chaos and mm-hmm. it's actually kind of like the atmosphere in a way. It, it, it's just unpredictable and it takes these different paths, but there's always an answer. The the current is the, the right path, and it does. Some, it's something that really does interest me, and I think it does play a huge part in everything. <laughs> Shall we jump into the quickfire questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Um, what principles do you stand by? Off the top of my head, quick fire. I think something that I always lived by growing up, which was drummed into me actually by my mother more than anyone else, was to go the extra mile. And I think that's something that 
is important and, and has done me well. And if there's an opportunity that comes around, it's just to follow up on it and, and see where it goes. A good Scottish principle, that, that's for sure. <laughs> Don't um, corners. I'm familiar with, yeah. <laughs> what hard choices have you had to make that may have been tough at the time, but when you look back on them, they were the right decision? I think coming to England to do my degree was a very difficult decision at the time. I knew I was going to be very far away from family, from friends, but secretly at the back of my mind, I was always excited, but it was, I think, probably one of the difficult, most difficult decisions uh, of my life. And I think, well, I wouldn't want to change anything. I think it was the right decision. I mean, it's easy to say that now, but it's something I wouldn't regret. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? <laughs> well, in, in current lockdown, well, it's not very far. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, if Boris is listening within five kilometres um, from my home. No, I think for new ideas, I think with technology, there's there's so much inspiration already out there. Powerful platforms, social media platforms. You see how other people are, are working with data. There's always inspiration there. One of the people I followed from from quite a while back, a chap called Zach Leib. He's, he's well worth following on Twitter. His, his graphics are very good, very engaging, and all about the Arctic. And that's where I learned a lot about, you know, how the ice is depleting and, and the Arctic feedback systems I've been talking about in this in this talk. And I think that's that's a source of inspiration, seeing how data and how people react to that. And also somebody who is also very well known in this country, Ed Hawkins, who designed the hmm. Climate Spiral, which featured on the 2012 Olympic Games. You know, oh, that yeah. sort of graphic, very, very powerful graphics. You know, there's different ways of looking at the data and these very influential people, you know, have got very good ways of, of dealing with the data and, and communicating it. So I think source of inspiration, you see it within the scientific community for the stuff I, I do myself. And, and it's definitely hats, hats off to, to those that were there before me. <laughs> I'm not mm. reinventing the wheel. Aside from what you focus on around your climate communications and meteorology, of what one problem is worth solving outside of your core area of focus? I mean, I think most people, when I speak to, they say climate is the biggest uh, problem worth solving. But, uh, I mean, for you, yeah, we know that. But what other problem would you list? It's a big one. Because, well, climate does cover a lot of you know ongoing problems, emergencies, like food shortages. And if you could end, or, end all these sort of global humanitarian problems, then that, that would be, you know, golden. But I think... Besides that, I think equal opportunity, you know, from a young age is something that I think is something I didn't really appreciate growing up in somewhere small because everybody was the same, very small town. Everyone played football. You had the Gaelic speakers playing football against English speakers. That was your biggest problem at the time growing up. Very safe. <laughs> you know, th- that was it. You're, you're just playing football with your friends in a place that was not, now realizing how beautiful it was and you know, it's it's not a place that's full of money. It's not it's not like a big city. It's not a capital city or anything like that. It's not got any crime. It's, it's just somewhere safe. And I think if everybody had that same start of just a small town and very kind of beautiful surroundings, I think that the world would be very different. And and the way people perceive the world in in a very kind of safe environment is so important. And I think it's, it's just not there. It's, it, well, it's definitely not there. And I think that equal opportunity is is a huge, huge issue that well, yeah, be very difficult to solve. But it'd be great if everybody could have that equal start, and their biggest problem be their football lunchtime game. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be that'd be amazing. Yeah. Okay. You get to invite four people from the present, from history, to help you solve for a better, create a better future. Who would they be? I did have a think about this. I always like to think there's there's a bit of humour to be had in, in a situation <laughs> where, where you know, things are looking dark. I think humour is, is very, very important. And I think the person behind the greenhouse effect and who kind of pioneered you know, climate change as, as a concept before it even became popular science, a, a chap called Guy Collender, if you could bring him back now and... <laughs> I swear he would just say something like, I told you so. And he could have the conversations perhaps with some of the, the largest deniers out there. And it, just to have that conversation with somebody who said, this is the physics, this is the science. We don't even have the data to prove, you know, this trend that's going to happen that we have now. The data that we have now, like, proves what he said, you know, like, bang on the money. And I think having <laughs> having him around just to, 
to comment on that. And even without the three others in the room, would be absolutely fantastic. So I think I'd hope there'd be three three deniers and a guy. Three deniers and a guy. But I think other people like that broke boundaries in science who kind of went against odds because you know we're in a day and age where data and integrity and, and verification of sources it's so difficult to know what's real and what's not and also like who to believe and one scientist will say this one scientist will say that someone will use that against another one and it gets very very complicated I think somebody who kind of stood out against the odds and, and got laughed at and you know booed for for even hypothesizing their theories was Charles Darwin everybody you know knows who he was and somebody like that who's stood up against science uh, and really kind of broke down barriers in, in that kind of mindset you know having that conversation with the people that are really against the idea and the big industry for example and then just kind of putting them in the room and just kind of sitting back and then let them have a podcast and see what goes on yeah okay impossible question what would your advice be to someone that's uh, about to graduate study that's got a dream um, a goal a really grand ambition but they've been told yeah, you should pack it in forget it it's never going to happen it's impossible I think that's that's a really good question and I think if anybody does get told that either the path that they're choosing to take is either incorrect or or wrong or not likely it's it's not how it works and it's probably very specific to that person that that's saying it so they've experienced something that's made them say that and I think for somebody to say that this is the path you must take to do this you're not doing it right you must follow what I say like that's that's totally wrong and I've come to realize even like in the professional world often you know asking questions and just you know creating opportunities for yourself there's there's no path that that works for all you've got to kind of it sounds really cliche but you kind of just got to do your own and if, if you think it's going to work uh, and you've got the the ideas behind you and, and the way to execute it then you just have to go for it and obviously try not to upset anyone on the way or, or doing silly but I think there, there's no rules when it comes to you know paths and if somebody's telling you otherwise and that's just their humble opinion and yeah be careful who you listen to I think that's the main takeaway <laughs> good point um What's your go-to karaoke song when we come out of lockdown, obviously? <laughs> uh, that does remind me, actually, on my, my 21st birthday when I was studying in Oklahoma. I was at a karaoke bar. Well, it was actually just an Irish bar on the edge of campus. And uh-huh. 500 Miles by the Proclaimers, which I sang. And I actually sang it with a German chap. He was a good friend. And he knew the words better than me. And I thought most I knew the words that, quite well. Most, most non-Scots do know it better. <laughs> yeah, for a close second, Chumbawamba's tub-thumping. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> we'll put it in. I'm in the process of building a, a Spotify playlist of guests' recommended songs, so we'll put them both down. Ah, great. 500 Miles and Chumbawamba. Yeah, lockdown, we've all been spending more time watching documentaries, TV series on Apple, Netflix, Amazon. What would you recommend? Well, this is interesting because I've weirdly not watched that much. But I too, really, too busy doing your really, charts. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's probably true. The, the series I really did enjoy and I, I got hooked in was Money Heist, the Casa de Papel, yeah. and yeah. it's. I didn't realize like how it exploded across the world in popularity, and I don't know if you know lockdown and Netflix it it, it gave it a bit of a boost because everybody mm-hmm. seems to have watched everything now, and I I think actually I've got an idea with using money heist and you know weather graphics and that there'll be something more on that later and oh. tying into something something a bit fun so interesting hopefully Look something to that okay what book we offer a book to any listeners that come up with good comments on instagram or on the website what book would you want to offer us to offer them i don't do that much reading again probably making too many weather maps but <laughs> interestingly a book that's cropped up from the past is my family and other animals as I said just recently, I, I've not been watching many documentaries or, sorry, not documentaries, um, like Netflix shows or, mm. or Amazon Prime, but I have been watching The Durrells, the ITV show. Yeah. Based on the trilogy book set. And I think, you know, something I'd want to go back to and read properly as an as an adult. So I think that that's the one that's at the front of my mind. Uh-huh. Okay, that's great. And final question, who should we interview next? I have a couple of ideas, music and sport, as I've talked about quite a 
quite a bit. It's been a huge part of my life. Got a friend who has done very well for herself. I've, I've not I've not talked to her for for a while, but she's now a professional golfer, and I think she's had a very interesting path. We're both in the, the ski club together as as racers, uh, and she's had a very interesting career. And I think she'd be a very interesting person to have on the show. So I definitely need to get in contact with her. There's a couple of people, as I said, in the music industry who have been hit very hard by COVID because they're performing all over the world in, in bands and, and shows. And obviously that part of the music industry is, is taking quite a, quite a hit. So I think I've not got the name uh, yet, but there's a okay. few people I have in mind. So music and sport well, is the, the idea. We'll be following up on that. So I just wrap up and thank you, Scott, for your time and uh, for being a, a generous, willing guest. And I just acknowledge you for... Yeah, I think you're sort of, it's rare because I think everyone is familiar with meteorology and climate, but data visualization has become so popular in recent years. And I've, it's the first time I've seen anything that's genuinely engaging. So we have to acknowledge you for just your, your curiosity and your imagination to take something that is could be very dry and turn it into something that is so powerful. And, and it is it just it genuinely stops you in your tracks when you see it and i'm certainly sharing it with a lot of people so uh, yeah thank you for your enthusiasm um your passion and i think also the other thing we have to acknowledge is the fact that you are potentially could be drawn into arguments based on object objectivity with these trolls with these other people on the other side of climate deniers who are the doom-mongers and your non-judgmental way of dealing with it, I think, has to be applauded. And I think that's great because I it's think it's a, it's a better online environment for you standing there and not being drawn into these these pools of argument and denial, aggression and trolling. So hopefully people will learn from you and be inspired by what you do. So keep up the good work. And we look forward to seeing the money heist uh, climate charts. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, thanks, thanks for all the, the kind words and, and having me on. It's, okay, it's been fun. But also, thanks to thanks again to Julian, to Julian. for yeah. throwing my name into serendipity. <laughs> there you go. Okay, see you later. Uh, okay. Cheers, Bye. Thanks, Mark. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.